Welcome to another episode of Ready Teacher One. I'm Adam Mangana. And I'm Ryan McLaughlin. And with us today is Seth Fleischauer, the founder and president of Banyan Global Learning. Seth, we are so thrilled to have the chance to talk to you today. Uh, you and I have chatted a lot back and forth on LinkedIn. Um, definitely a, a kindred spirit with us. Definitely somebody that thinks about ed tech, thinks about the future of education technology in similar ways to us. So we're just thrilled to have the chance to talk to you, man. And I'm so stoked to be here and knowing how these uh, recordings work, I know that your theme music just faded out. And I have to say, I love that. Where, where did you get that? Who, who wrote it? Man, you know, our AV guy, uh, the incomparable Trey Griffin, who's just uh, an incredible dude uh, and an incredible DJ as well. He just found, I think it was a YouTube thing where it was free theme music or, or, or free music.com. I, I forget what it was called. It was, it was 80s sounding music that we had available for free. And we went with it because, you know, being inspired by Ready Player One, we loved all the 80s culture and, and all that good stuff. That's, uh, yeah. That's awesome. But, but it, was, it was free, so it's for me. <laughs> uh, well said, yeah. Uh, I love the like 80s vibe with, with the VR theme. Obviously, you know, inspired by Ready Player One because it feels like, uh, you know, the same way that uh, video games were kind of in this wild westy phase of things that like that's kind of where VR is at right now where, uh, you know, the possibilities are just endless. So uh, I, I like the comparisons. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It, you know, VR is... It's interesting, you know, we had, you know, in 1990, you had about 4 million people on the internet. Today, we have 4 billion. Uh, people are projecting, you know, that by the year 2027, we may have 1 billion folks in headsets. That's wow. pretty incredible to think about. That's 1 wild. billion headsets. What would that mean for your business, Seth? You know, that is the big question. Um, I was, I was uh, first, I've, I've been thinking about VR for a long time, but I hadn't really experienced it firsthand until I listened to your episode actually with Chris Madsen. And uh, it was at that point that I realized that it was somewhat of a professional liability for me to not have a VR headset. So I went out and bought one the next day. And uh, I've been trying to figure out, um, you know, how it applies to, to my business. We do live video teleconferencing, right? So uh, we've been doing it for uh, almost 15 years. So that means that we came to it by choice, uh, which is not uh, what everybody else experienced in, in these last uh, 15 months here. Uh, but we really believe in the, um, the profound power of the technology to uh, bring people together, to connect learners to uh, people, places, and ideas outside their classroom. Same way I'm connecting uh, with you guys right now. Um, and, uh, and that's really where the, um, the overlap I felt was with, uh, with video conferencing and VR, was just this ability to break down the classroom walls and experience things uh, far beyond what you would be able to experience in the traditional classroom. And um, yeah, I, you know, how it exactly applies to what we do, I'm, I, I, I don't know yet. I'm still a novice uh, and I'm experiencing it, uh, you know, with, with wide eyes and, and, um, and intense curiosity right now. Seth, that's uh, super cool to hear. Adam, listen to that. At Ready Teacher One, changing lives, changing business practices out here. We're inspiring people to go out and uh, plop some uh, US dollars onto VR headsets. That's super exciting. I think this <laughs> is a, a hallmark, Ryan. I think we're going to need some Ready Teacher One merch now that we've inspired. <laughs> Man, yeah. we keep saying that. We keep saying that. We're going to have to make it happen. I'm launching sure. a long john suit. A long john suit. Ready Teacher One long john suit with the flap and the butt area 
Oh, I mean, man. given that you and I both live in Florida, I'm not sure that that's uh, a long-term strategy there, man. But um, and, and Seth being in Portland where they're having a, a record heat wave, I'm not sure that uh, Seth, Seth's too interested in the long johns either. Well, no, but what Seth didn't realize is it's going to be haptic long johns all the way through. <laughs> Full haptic long john suit. Hey, man. Oh, we man. I, I, I'm down. I'm down. I'm <laughs> First customer right here. So, Seth, I would love to take a step back and just hear about your background, man. Tell us about, uh, you know, I know that you were a classroom teacher. I know that you taught fifth grade, right? And uh, then you made the transition at some point to ed tech. Tell us about your personal journey. Yeah, so I did New York City teaching fellows while I was living in New York in like 2004. Um, I was uh, choosing between social work and teaching. And uh, basically, uh, social work, I was going to have to pay for the master's and teaching, I got to pay for, pay for one of the programs. So that made it's it free. It's for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I jumped right in. That's the, the nature of that program. Uh, it was a summer's worth of training and then right there in the classroom. Um, on my very first day of teaching, I remember uh, one of my students threw up on the floor and I learned the, uh, the very valuable lesson of how not to panic. Um, <laughs> that student, I bring it up now because that student I hadn't talked to in 15 years and he contacted me yesterday. And wow. yeah, That's so cool. yeah, he found me through Facebook and um, I taught him actually in third and fifth grade. And uh, yeah, he was telling me that, uh, you know, I, I was a real source of inspiration for him that he, um, uh, when he has hard times in his life, he thinks back on those times, man, I was, I was a crying mess listening okay. to these messages from this kid. Um, and you know, and that's, that's, that's why we do what we do, right? We, right. we, we, we jump into this, um, to, to connect and to, uh, to try to, um, breed positive change. And I, I did that for a while in the classroom, uh, taught in Brooklyn and then in New York's in, um, uh, Manhattan where I taught at a, a very progressive public school uh, that was really the beginning of me kind of honing in on, on my personal philosophy of education. The first three years, I was just kind of floating uh, and bringing passion and care uh, to my craft, but not really uh, putting a lot of thought into um, what excellent education should look like. Uh, but then going over to uh, the school in the East Village, man, it was, they they still, the earth school, they, they still uh, are just doing uh, God's work there. You know, they, they are absolutely um, uh, putting the, the child first and operating within a system that makes it difficult to do that sometimes, uh, but otherwise are, um, you know, just uh, really uh, paying attention to, to what kids need uh, by actively listening and learning alongside them. And, um, and then it was uh, in, I guess, 2007, I, I taught abroad for a summer. I'd always wanted to live abroad. Um, and I went to uh, Taipei, Taiwan. If people have not been to Taiwan, uh, I highly recommend it. It flies under the radar as a destination. Uh, people don't really think of it. Half of Americans think it's Thailand, uh, but, but it's not. Uh, and it's, uh, it's an absolutely beautiful country filled with uh, 
wonderful, kind people, great food, um, just a, a, a beautiful culture that I absolutely appreciated being a part of for a short time. Um, but when I came back to the States, I, uh, I uh, pitched the school that I had been working at. I pitched them an idea for a distance learning program. Uh, they had no idea what that was because <laughs> it was 2008. And, uh, but uh, video conferencing was just kind of uh, starting up. And um, I uh, basically sold them on the idea of being able to connect the students to a, uh, a culture of teachers in, in a different country and uh, bring in that cultural element, uh, that live connection. And, uh, and in addition to focusing on, on English language and technology, and, uh, and they went for it. And, and when I first jumped in, I was like, I am going to bring progressive ed to Asia. Here I go. And very quickly, I realized I'm not going to be able to do that. They were not quite ready uh, to, uh, uh, you know, um, really just uh, break from the system where there, there is a correct answer. And that correct answer is the one that we are all going for. Uh, and uh, to this day, I think that that's the biggest value add that we have for our program in Asia is, uh, is the, uh, the cultural teaching of the idea that there is more than one right answer and that um, it, bringing creativity to problem solving uh, is something that is worthwhile. And they, uh, to, to, their, oops, sorry, uh, to their absolute credit, they understand that they know that um, they see that deficiency within their their traditional system and they really wanted to uh to to bring that with our program and over the years we've kind of chipped away and chipped away and chipped away and we've gotten to the point where uh it really is that um progressive program i wanted it to be 15 years ago uh we've got um a junior high program where the students are, are working almost entirely around the sdgs the u.n sustainable development goals um, we in, incorporate a lot of international student collaborations, a lot of these uh, virtual field trips that are just super cool. Uh, and then that's the, that's the program that we brought to the United States and Canada as well, the schools that, that are out here, uh, which we started working with a couple years ago, bringing um, uh, virtual programs in the topics of world culture, SEL, and digital citizenship. Uh, so that's what we're focusing on now, which is basically like building up that, that part of the business of uh, reaching students on those important uh, subject matters and, and um, bringing it in in a, in a type of way that's like, a, you know, it's the, it's the type of thing that students will go home and tell their parents about that day. You know, it's like it's that kind of special event, that feeling that you got when you like went to the auditorium uh, and, and there was that buzz in the, in the room. Um, that, that's what we're going for with, with our products uh, to, to make sure that we are, are bringing excitement and engagement uh, to the educational experience as something that will drive further work in the classroom after that. Um, yeah, so that's what we did. <laughs> I have a, uh, an idiosyncratic kind of personal question for you, Seth. I uh, grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is one of our claims to, cl uh, claims to fame is uh, our population of banyan trees. Uh, ah. We uh, were one of the few geographic areas of Florida that has the, the right climate to grow banyan trees. And so we've got uh, several famous ones around the city. A lot of our St. Pete uh, logos and merch and stuff like that has banyan trees. So I uh, grew up with that as my favorite tree. Your company name obviously caught my attention immediately. And so I have to ask, why are you called banyan? 
Uh, well, I, I have to ask why you think we're called Banyan. Mm. Mm, that's a great question. Um, well, I would have to guess it has something to do with the fact that the Banyan tree holds a privileged place in uh, Hindu mythology as being sort of a connection between heaven and earth. But that's just the first thing that comes to my mind. I love it. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason is that there, uh, throughout a lot of different cultures, there, uh, the banyan tree is very important and it has a lot of different meanings in a lot of different places. Uh, something I didn't know when we named the company was that in Malaysia, it is a symbol of, of death, uh, not in, in a bad way, but like a, like a protector of spirits uh, because the banyan tree would uh, sit in cemeteries and the, the roots that drop down uh, would sort of keep the area clean of any other uh, plants coming in. Uh, those roots really are kind of the, the center of the metaphor for us, uh, the way that they fall down from the tree and then can plant themselves and, and um, create new life. Uh, there's a metaphor for education in general uh, being this, uh, you know, kind of, or really society being this, this um, uh, center of wisdom uh, that can then get passed down uh, to the new members of the society. Uh, we also work in a lot of different areas doing a lot of different things, uh, a lot of different subject areas. So you could see the diversity of the different branches falling down in all those different places as being representative of uh, the breadth of the, the content that we, that we cover. Um, and it's also at, um, a, a, a source of ancient wisdom. Um, and that really is kind of the, uh, the, the crux of it. Excellent. Excellent. Love what that answer. Think, you know, you, you know this, the teleconferencing space really well. What do you think has happened since the pandemic that, that, well, let me, let me ask it this way. What do you think has jumped the shark in the way that we do school, uh, even in teleconferencing, uh, since the pandemic? What has permanently changed now that you think will, as we move forward, will, will, will really impact the way that this type of medium is used for learning? Yeah, I think there are two things. One, from, from my point of view, from what we do, uh, the biggest uh, obstacle to people engaging with our product was uh, hardware and know-how. And both of those things are out the window now. Everybody has the hardware. And even teachers who were pretty intimidated by what many, my, many of your listeners, I assume listening to a PR podcast, might consider to be somewhat uh, trivially easy technology. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of people who were intimidated by simply you know, how to make a connection. And that is uh, absolutely out the window now. Uh, another thing is that uh, my daughter included, at-home learning worked for a lot of people. And uh, I think that you're seeing uh, a bit of a sea change in terms of how parents view education. The, um, some parents saw learning from home and were like, get my kid back in the classroom as soon as you possibly can, please. Right? Right. And, and that, is, that is a completely legitimate uh, point of view. Uh, on the other side of that, you have my experience with my daughter at home where uh, being able to free her from the physical space of the classroom allowed her to pursue a whole lot of stuff that she would not have even come close to touching in a, in a traditional classroom space. But being able to engage with her classmates over video conferencing kept her anchored 
in that social community, which I think was super important. Now, a component of her experience was that we also had a learning pod. So we had like three families that on, you know, uh, three afternoons a week, um, I took one of the afternoons, the other two families took their afternoons, and there was that close social connection. And I think that for a lot of kids, especially definitely for my daughter, that that type of social connection is also very critical to their success. But uh, in the meantime, you know, basically what I experienced was a cobbling together uh, through trial and error of a bunch of different things that I thought my daughter might uh, appreciate about an educational experience. And, you know, there were definitely up and ups and downs to that experience. But overall, looking back on it, I mean, what a year. She, um, you know, she learned how to bake. She learned, uh, got, got really good at the piano, started writing her own songs. Um, she uh, did a bunch of thousand piece puzzles, uh, <laughs> which like, you know, that honestly, that was like the hardest one for me because she got really into it. And I was just like, uh oh, like if I let her, she's going to spend like eight hours a day just like listening to podcasts and, and doing puzzles. Um, and, and I had, I don't know, I mean, what, what do you guys think about that? What would you do in that scenario where uh, your kid, you know, you're trying to give your kid the freedom to pursue um, what they want to do, what they're interested in. You want to kind of be the, the guide on the side, uh, but there's a thing that they're into they, where you're like, ah, I don't know about the, the balance here. Yeah, I, think it's a, I think it's a really good question. You know, Ryan knows this about me. We, he and I, uh, we, we joust back and forth. Um, I would want her to own the means of production. I would want her to create a puzzle and I would take that energy and I would say, hey, I love that you love this. Can you share this with others? Can you build a puzzle for others to consume? And so, you know, I think it's a balance, right, of, of consumption and production. If they are only um, having those inputs in one direction and not sharing, then it can become gluttonous, no matter what it is, you know? Yeah, oh, dude, that was, where were you three months ago, man? That <laughs> <laughs> was beautiful, I love that. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll just add on to what Adam just said there. To me, it's about knowing your kid, right? I think that every kid is going to have a different answer to that. And part of the beauty of what we're seeing arise out of, uh, you know, the, the beauty from the ashes of the pandemic is the empowerment of parents to make the sort of a la carte educational decisions for their kids um, that really meet individual needs, right? Uh, uh, we can infinitely differentiate, if you will. Um, for my own kid, you know, my oldest is 10 and, um, you know, similar to podcasts and puzzles for you, I, I tend to err on the side of letting him spend a little too much time on the legend of Zelda. And part of that is, um, you know, obviously it's something that we share cause I grew up as a, an eighties and nineties kid and I'm thrilled that the franchise is still around and it's something we can bond over. But you know, for every hour that I let him spend on Legend of Zelda, he then turns around with the spark that his imagination has gotten and puts out about four hours of 
creative production to Adam's point. You know, he will sit down and write short stories about The Legend of Zelda, his fan fiction, if you will. He will uh, work with his friends to come up with new characters and draw them. He will um, create maps of new worlds that he would like to someday see in A Legend of Zelda. So it, there's this creative spark that comes from that, that I think, you know, if we were to strictly adhere to that traditional, like, butts and seats, eight hours a day, Prussian education model that we've, you know, come to know and love over the, the last 150 years here in the United States, um, you don't get those opportunities with that. But I think, you know, not every kid is like that. You know, it sounds like uh, your kid and my kid have a lot in common, but that's, you know, what's right for them may not meet the needs of every other kid. And so, you know, the ability to find the individual balance and empower parents to make those decisions for their kids, I think is really crucial. Yeah, and, and, and it beautifully said about the, the ashes uh, of the pandemic, because, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of pain and suffering in this past year, but um, it's also a lot of dis disruption led to creativity, trying new things. Uh, and the fact that uh, parents just took the time to think about their kids' education, <laughs> like, like every single one of them had to. Um, and, uh, and now what you see is it are all these options and, 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 uh, in terms of jumping the shark and, and, um, and video conferencing, I think this has firmly rooted itself as an option for many parents. Seth, what's the magic number? When, when, what number of humans, when they get on a video conference becomes too many? Ooh, um, I would like to argue there isn't a number. Uh, but I haven't gone above like a thousand. So uh, it's just a different experience. Um, you have uh, the one-to-one -one experience and, and what that means. Um, you have, uh, we, we've, we've gone up to like a thousand kids uh, where the, the, the interaction is just chat-based. Um, we've also, it's, it's funny the way that we've gotten there uh, during the pandemic because there are these uh, privacy permissions, right? So we call it inception style, uh, but we will connect with, with one person who will then share the Zoom screen into Google Hangouts. And there are like 40 classrooms on the Google Hangout, right? So that is uh, a way to make it so that we as strangers are not, you know, quote unquote, in the classroom with these kids, which is the, the rules in, in some of these districts. Um, now in that situation, if you have prepared the teacher ahead of time for the types of things that they can do during your program to make it so that uh, they are taking over some of the interactive elements of the program, then you can accomplish a lot of the same things that you could if it was just one teacher to, to one classroom, um, for example. So what I tell people when they ask, can I do this with a larger number of kids? You know, obviously cost is a, is a big issue for a lot of people. So the more kids you can get in there, the more cost effective it is. Uh, I tell them basically, if the, if the teacher can be more, uh, can take on a little bit more ownership, it's not going to be as interactive as it would be if it was in a smaller group. Uh, but the, um, the returns diminish uh, to a point and then they kind of, they kind of plateau. Um, and, you know, same way that in any given uh, special event in an auditorium, right? Like if it was one class of 30 kids, yeah, those 30 kids, you know, 10 of them would get to ask their, the question that's burning in their, in their heads and, and get that recognition, right, of, of being the kid who asked the question. Um, but uh, you can decentralize that a bit with the classrooms, get the teacher that role. Um, and otherwise, uh, you know, the larger the group, the less kids are going to get that sort of recognition, but they're still going to be able to engage 
with the experience. What are some of the most exciting things that, that you guys will be offering in the next year? What products, what services are you really kind of excited about having this kind of ed tech community learn about and maybe even try out or beta test? Yeah, so we have a, probably the one I'm most excited about is our digital citizenship program. Uh, this is a topic that uh, I think people underestimated the importance of. Sure. <laughs> and, and I know that a lot of schools are scrambling to get stuff into the curriculum. The nation's kindergartners, for example, were thrown in front of screens well before any of us thought they would be uh, and spent the whole year there before we gave them like any kind of instruction on, uh, on how to do it. Right. Um, so we... Our, our digital citizenship program is all about uh, staying safe online and building community online. And building community online has to do, we, we bring in a lot of our SEL work, our social and emotional learning work into, into that element of the program. And we teach it all for young kids, we teach it with puppets. So we've got uh, little video vignettes that we filmed with these puppets where there's a real life scenario uh, that sets up the problem in the first half of the of the vignette and then in the second half it uh, solves the problem and then in between the students are helping the puppets solve the problem so you've got one teacher uh, and then another teacher who's actually got the puppet uh, so these kids like see the puppet in uh, you know on, on tv quote unquote and then that wall breaks and the puppet's right there talking to them uh, which is a, a really fun experience for them and really speaks to what is uh, special about this live video that we do where we really um, there's an edutainment factor to it and we're really like a, a TV show that you jump into and then you are participating and, and interacting and affecting uh, the, the program and um, and then in the, the second half as I said they, they come up with these solutions so essentially the they are uh, applying their digital citizenship skills to these real life scenarios in a way that's fun and engaging. Uh, and the, we've gotten amazing feedback on this stuff. We're, we're really excited about it. Uh, we've also got our SEL programs. We use music to address SEL. For those, we really recommend uh, that we do like a longer engagement with the classes where we really kind of get to know the students more. Uh, the work is, is more effective when we were able to make those longer term relationships. And then we've got world culture programs where we're adding new countries all the time. Uh, we're developing a trip in Colombia right now. And um, we've got Brazil and Taiwan and New Zealand, uh, Mexico, and uh, Israel is another one we're working on. And um, it's, these are all, uh, if, we, if time zone permits, these are live connections. So it is a, a, a classroom full of students in Tampa, Florida who is connecting live with a teacher in Israel, taking you around the food markets there, uh, showing you the, the cultural mixings that happen and, and the evidence uh, of that in the food culture, um, or taking you down the street in a small town in New Zealand, uh, showing you all of the different uh, cultural hotspots that, um, that uh, display that particular little melting pot. Um, we, we make sure in our programs that we are uh, giving the students purpose uh, to what they are experiencing. So every single moment, there's a problem they're trying to solve. There's a question they're considering. Uh, there is a, uh, a purpose to, to what they're doing. 
And, um, and there's also a, like a, a narrative arc to each of these programs. So um, it's, uh, it, you know, again, this is where the overlap is with VR and video games and stuff. Like we're, we're somewhere in between all of this stuff where, where there is utility, you know, it's almost as if their, their voices are their controller as they're um, uh, going through these experiences and having an effect on where the teacher goes and what they say and what they do. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the, the, the narrative that's built into it is also sort of like a video game, right? Where there's, um, it, yes, they, they have choices along the way, but we're kind of pushing them towards this, this, uh, you know, uh, given conclusion. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun stuff. Very cool. That's tremendous. And I, and I love the work that you guys are doing to build those global connections. And I love the work that you're doing around UN's SDGs and all that stuff. Um, one of the things that you hear talked about a lot in the ed tech space is uh, the next billion users, right? We've got, as Adam mentioned earlier, um, another billion people to add to the internet, right? Uh, as the technology progresses and as we begin to think about how the internet and how video conferencing and how VR and video games will continue to expand into places that right now may not even have uh, electrical grids, right? What do you see as being the main challenges to overcome? And what do you see as being the most exciting opportunities as you think about creating those global connections with the next billion users? From my perspective, it's a great question. Um, what, what we've tried to do throughout our time uh, in this space is create authentic connections. And that is like, creating an authentic connection peer to peer is a really challenging thing to do just logistically. It, even when you take out the, the tech limits, right? Even if you were just trying to get two classes next to each other in the same building to collaborate on stuff, there are a lot of, of challenges there. I would like to think that as uh, we develop into a model where you see more schools kind of following what our kids did this last year with some a la carte type of stuff, that those logistical challenges uh, will start to decrease because of the relative freedom that students will have to explore the types of topics that they want to explore. At that point, if you decouple a given student experience from the experience of everybody else in their class, you have really freed up the ability of students to connect outside their classroom because you don't have this time logistical challenge of fitting these 30 kids with these 30 kids at this exact moment, right? Um, and so when you're talking about like adding a bunch of new users, uh, potentially if they are able to, to have, um, you know, break away from those logistical challenges, we can create more collaborative experiences. All of those things that I just talked about, all those experiences where it's one teacher to one classroom full of kids, you could imagine that as one teacher to a bunch of different kids in a bunch of different places. And once you have that, then it's a whole different experience because then you are, our angle on, on global connections is all about empathy, right? If we can build the social and emotional tools 
for students to uh, operate in that that realm of discomfort that can happen when you uh, smash cultures together, right? There, there's there's beauty and um, and inspiration that can come from that, but there's also some discomfort when you learn about that thing where you're like, huh, I don't know, I don't know about that thing, <laughs> right? Or like my culture, my culture doesn't doesn't really believe that, right? Like once you get into the depth that is required to make those really authentic connections, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, right? Like, like there are, there are some difficult moments. And so when you skill up students with the social and emotional learning skills, that's when getting into those moments can, you, you can get past them, you can work through them, you can operate in that discomfort, and then you've, uh, you've created that real authentic connection. So, if you put all that together, um, you know, kind of uh, freeing up any given student's schedule and um, skilling people up uh, with social emotional learning, cultural empathy, cultural resiliency, um, then you're in a situation where uh, these collaborations with students from all over the world, I mean, these could happen all the time. And imagine how cool that would be. <laughs> Well, VR, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm so impressed with what you're doing in two dimensions. VR, as you continue to explore it, for the last five years, I've been doing that exact work, you know, this idea of perspective taking, mm -hmm. uh, walking a mile in someone else's avatar. You know, you talk about walking a mile in someone else's shoes. You know, historically, you know, the best empathy machines in the world were the great books. And now we have this technology where we can literally walk into 1968 Memphis from the perspective of the sanitation workers during the assassination of Martin Luther King and be able to empathize with that context and be able to see, wow, this was, uh, there were literally tanks on the street of Memphis, right? During this time mm -hmm. period. So, you know, there, there, there is a powerful tool that hacks time and space that I see, um, you know, that, that will eventually get there. Right now, there may be some friction around it. As you've tested virtual reality, uh, and as you've thought about that in the context of building online community, what what comes to mind as the low-hanging fruit to build community online using more immersive technology? That's a great question. And I do want to hear from you about um, some of your suggestions around those those empathy vehicles. I love that, uh, that terminology, or empathy machine, is that what you call it? I call it the best, the world's best empathy machine. The, the technique is perspective taking, and that's yeah. this great research out of Stanford, uh, but, but basically literally walking a mile in someone else's avatar, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what, what we do is take students and, and put them in a place that they would otherwise never have access to, right? But we do it with a live human who's there with them, kind of shepherding them through through the, uh, the process. And that's been kind of the biggest challenge that I've seen in terms of kind of replicating what we do in, uh, in our space, in the VR space, is how do, I, how do I make it feel like the person is, is not only there, but there in real time. And uh, that's not the answer to your question. You were asking for low-hanging fruit, and I'm answering you with like what I see as the biggest obstacle, because um, that's something that I haven't been able to to get past in terms of how I would take what I do and apply it to the VR space. Do you guys have a have a response or solution to that? Do you think it's just a matter of time? Like, I, you know, I'm imagining like someone with a with a 360 degree camera. Um, uh, 
you know, attached to their helmet. And somehow we're getting all of that data up to uh, somewhere in real time in a way that they can also like walk around and interact and like, you know, pull, you know, grab something if someone says grab it and, and hold it up to the camera, you know, like I, th I feel like we're still a little ways off from that, but, but how far off are we? Oh, you, Adam. Go for it, buddy. <laughs> I mean, dude, you teed us up today, huh? <laughs> you teed us up. Um, yeah, so, so um, you know, one of the exciting things about uh, Ready Teacher One is that, you know, it was born from an idea that this is how we would do school in the future. And right now, everything that you're describing, um, we have the capacity to do. So we have the capacity to synchronously be in the metaverse together. And we can use either an avatar or we can use a photorealistic um, projection of a person presenting and bring it into that space in the metaverse uh, right now. We can do that. We have the technology to do that as we speak. The, uh, the barriers to entry are, as you said, hardware and know-how. So the hardware at the current moment is about $300 per headset to do this with fidelity. And so for many people in the world, $300 for a headset is, is still expensive. Uh, but when I started this five years ago, it was $3,000 for a tool that could do something like that. So we've gotten 10X cheaper in the last five years. Uh, and probably the visual fidelity has improved about 5X in the last five years. So we have a better product for $300 than we did for $3,000. Um, the other piece is the know-how. Um, you know, there is still a, uh, there's still a barrier to kind of demystify uh, this technology. But Ryan and I are big fans. Probably our, our favorite metaverse is, uh, is, is created by an Irish company, and, and that's Chris Madsen's uh, company. That's Engage. And Engage has just absolutely incredible tools. And you can use a whole bunch of third-party software and applications to bring assets into Engage and interact um, synchronously and interact with both photorealistic um, assets as well as uh, low-poly um, computer-generated assets. Yeah, I, like Adam said, the folks at Engage just continuously blow us away with all the tremendous things they do. Our, our listeners are probably tired of hearing me talk about uh, the Mars rover landing party that Chris hosted. But uh, you know, for those that haven't heard me talk about it, uh, Chris Matson of Engage hosted a landing party or landing watch party, I should say, for the Perseverance rover that just landed on Mars a few months ago. And uh, using photogrammetry, they were able to create a, an incredibly lifelike surface of Mars where we got to hang out, we got to take a hike around the crater where the Perseverance rover was headed. Uh, Chris took us up in a helicopter and did sort of an aerial tour over Mars. Um, we got to see uh, an IFX of the Perseverance rover versus an IFX of the Curiosity rover so we could compare and contrast how the technology's developed over the last 10 years. And then they put up a big screen and watched the live stream that NASA had uh, of the actual Perseverance landing. I actually hopped out at that point because I wanted to watch it with my kids on CNN and you know we only had the one headset at the moment but uh, all that to say as I sit here listening to you talk Seth I think that it's really easy to imagine building something out and engage where kids are taking tours of Taipei yeah. or Israel or Colombia or any of the other destinations that you're working with right I think that uh, 
not terribly difficult at the moment. There is still, like Adam said, a little bit of a barrier to being able to actually put things together. But, um, you know, it's really easy for me to imagine one of your teachers uh, giving a guided tour of Taipei and Engage. I think that could be put together. I'm still here. Yeah. Ryan, you, you, uh, you, we, we lost you there for a moment there, brother. Oh, um, no. And, and you know what it was? It was our, it was our signal to uh, move to the Furious Five because you- <laughs> There you go. You hey, uh, before, before we go there for just one second, um, <clears throat> I, I posed this question on LinkedIn about like, you know, because we're talking about headset adop adoption and how expensive that is. Um, and I, I posed the question, I think Ryan, you chimed in on this around uh, what is the value of projecting VR experience onto a two-dimensional screen in a classroom? And um, I got an answer from this guy, uh, Paul, Raff, Paul Ralph Marcano. Do you guys know him? I'm no, sorry. but we'll find out about him. Uh, okay, I just want to read this, uh, this quote because I just think it's, it's perfect, all right? Uh, so he said, VR offers a major shift to that first-person perspective that reinforces and brings the mind and body back to its natural perceptive and cognitive center. This is where experience is stored effort, effortlessly as memories in contrast to learning more data on, on a flat screen, an electronic version of Gutenberg's 1440 press. When something occurs on a screen out there, it fundamentally tends toward a slow linear text-like conveying of information. Even a field trip demonstrates that on location, first person 360 learning makes up for, makes for a more provocative absorption of reality's experience. Virtual reality offers such a comparatively inexpensive, broad range and, and di diversity of such experience that the written word is almost redundant as these squiggly black forms and letters attempt to describe the indescribable. Hence, even emoticons try to clarify the underlying attempt at the universal meaning of this text-based experience. The investment in VR headsets for students is an amazingly cost-effective way to share deeper levels of knowledge and experience with students, allowing access to the caves and archives of world history and culture. I would not cheap out on um, this 21st century innovation augment augmenting traditional books of knowledge. I thought that was so well said. Paul, if you're listening, we're coming for you, buddy. You're going to be on the podcast soon. Yeah, yeah. He, he just described my life's work. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> All right. Time what for the Furious Five. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So, Seth, the Furious Five is how we like to end the podcast. It's going to be five questions that have literally nothing to do with what we've been talking here today. It's just going to be get to know you types of questions. The first question of the Furious Five, without any further ado, what's the best meal you've eaten recently? Oh, my gosh. That's, that's hard. Um, my wife is an amazing cook. Um, and I would say, uh, that she, we, she's been doing this thing where she just puts rice bowls together, uh, with like her homemade chipotle sauce and her homemade pickled onions and a little bit of like, you know, chicken that she marinated and some, uh, cilantro from our garden, some onions from our garden, some, some kale from our garden, just kind of like plop that all in a bowl together and it is delicious. What time should I be over for dinner? It's amazing. <laughs> All right. Second question of the Furious Five. What is the best TV or show or movie that you have watched recently? Um, I'm a huge Rick and Morty fan. Yes. Okay. Are you caught up on season five? Uh, episode one. I haven't, I haven't seen episode okay. two yet. But um, yeah, that show is 
the greatest combination of brilliant and just stupid. Uh, and <laughs> I absolutely love it. I forced my wife to watch the Pickle Rick episode not too long ago as an example of uh, just the heights to which the medium of television is capable of reaching, right? Like <laughs> just the sheer genius of the dialogue and the script writing on the show. Well, we'll have you back on and we'll just do an episode <laughs> on talking about Rick and Morty, Seth. Um, the third question of the Furious Five, what's the best book that you've ever read? Ever? Um, wow. Uh, a couple just popped in my head. I've, I, I've loved 100 Years of Solitude for a long time. Um, Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to think back on that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, my dad made me read that book when I was 14 years old. I wanted to go on a service trip to South America, and he said, you're not allowed to go until you read Marquez. Oh, uh, perfect. So. Uh, right now, I'm reading a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. I don't know if you know it, by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Uh, it's uh, indigenous knowledge, uh, or or sorry, indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teachings of plants. And it is just like 300 pages of, it's, it's like a, a, a love story written for plants. It's, it's amazing. Tremendous. Question four of the Furious Five. Who is a thought leader that our listeners should stop what they're doing right now and either go follow on social media or watch a TED Talk by or something along those lines? Who's a thought leader that everyone listening to this podcast needs to be aware of? Uh, I'm going to go somewhat personal on this one. Uh, Trevor Saponis is a, um, uh, the uh, head of the Sustainable Learning Projects. He is doing some incredible work with uh, some schools up in Alaska where they are uh, kelp farming as uh, this main part of their curriculum where they're literally like uh, uh, not only helping the environment, but also the local industry uh, from start to finish, from the seed to the, to the planting, to the harvesting, uh, to all the marketing around, like every single part of it, the students are all working on. Um, he has uh, a really brilliant mind uh, when he uh, thinks and talks about education. He's very active on LinkedIn uh, and sustainable learning projects are his, um, his baby uh, and it's just beautiful stuff. Oh, that's fascinating. I think, uh, I think the most recent episode of the Freakonomics podcast was about kelp farming, and I found it incredibly intriguing, right? Both as a, uh, a solution to uh, global warming, of course, but also as a solution to um, some of the economic woes that we're about, about to face as things get more automated, right? Um, yeah. Super interesting stuff. The last question of the Furious Five, we like to call the contrarian question, and it's really Adam's question. So at this point in the show, I always turn the mic back over to him. Adam. So Seth, you've been in this video conferencing business before the pandemic, and I'm curious, what do you know to be true about the cadence of the online school day that many of your online counterparts would disagree with you on? The cadence of the online school day. So you're talking about uh, students. How many on hours should they be in front of screens? What should <laughs> they be doing? I'm just wondering what you know to be true about this that you're uh, that the uh, that the other players in this space would disagree with you on. Yeah, I'm not sure if they would disagree if they heard me out on this, but uh, <laughs> the uh, there is a pace that a virtual experience needs to take that I think a lot of people in the space don't adhere to, uh, and they think that they can take an experience that happens in the classroom and just put it up online and you know wash their hands of it. That's it. 
we, we take a very intentional design approach to our experiences where uh, we assume that we have, if you, if you think about the amount of time you have in a classroom before you're going to lose a kid, we cut that in a half to a third. And we, uh, we switch up the inputs. We have multiple people on the call to, uh, just to break up the monotony of, of, of the sound of someone's voice. Uh, we bring in asynchronous video to mix in with the live video. Uh, we uh, display stuff in text. We display pictures. We are just constantly giving them something new because when students engage with the two-dimensional screen, that's what they expect. They expect a dynamic experience. And if you're not giving it to them, then you're losing them. Absolutely tremendous. Seth, where can our listeners find you on social media? So I've uh, Twitter that I'm trying to uh, attend to more now. Uh, I did a Twitter Spaces uh, conference. I guess it was the first ever conference on Twitter Spaces. I did a couple weeks ago, um, and uh, so I'm 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 building up our our, our presence there a little bit. Uh, Laoshi Seth uh, L A O S H I Seth uh, that is a teacher in Chinese, um, and. Uh, I'm on Twitter spaces, uh, we're gonna be talking about consciousness in education. That's kind of a little pet subject of mine. This idea that the, uh, it, when you bring consciousness and intentionality to your own learning practices, to the, uh, to the things that you are going through as a learner in this world, that you can help inform the, um, the interaction with your, uh, the learners that you're facilitating. Uh, so especially with a lot of these lifelong skills that, um, that uh, we didn't get any formal instruction on when we were kids, uh, digital citizenship being one of them, uh, social emotional learning, uh, definitely none of us heard of SEL when we were in school. Right. Uh, you know, these are the types of things that if you're doing it right, you're still learning. And so uh, bringing consciousness to that reality uh, is a great way to uh, have empathy for your young learners and to affect the relationship that you have with them. So that's the the topic uh, that me and my partners, uh, Komal Shaw and Lauren Pinto, we talk about on, on Twitter spaces. Um, and LinkedIn, I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Seth Fleischauer um, is my name and slug there. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, those, those are the places. And then beingingloballearning.com uh, is, is our website. So that's where you can see some of the things that we're doing. Uh, check out our blog. Uh, on our shop page, you've got all the different programs that we do. And then importantly, for any parents out there or teachers, we give away a, a free program every month. So uh, you'll see that at the top of our, of our shop page. Uh, coming up in July, uh, we're running our brand new Columbia program. So there is a... Um, if you guys know this, but in Colombia, there's a bit of a rivalry in terms of the arepas that they eat. Uh, there is uh, the Colombian version, and then there's the Venezuelan version. And uh, highlighting the differences between those things kind of teases out some of the differences between those cultures. And, uh, and that is the, the topic of our Colombia trip, which we'll be doing for free. I think it's the last Thursday in July uh, at 11 a.m. Pacific. Um, so that's, that's something to check out too. BanyanGlobalLearning.com. Very cool. Very Seth, good. thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We had so much fun chatting with you and learning more about you and the, the work that Banyan is doing. Um, just can't thank you enough for coming on the show today, man. Look, I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, I have uh, the utmost respect for what you guys are doing in this space, your dedication to the space. Uh, I love listening to the podcast. 
Uh, you guys are doing great work. Uh, Ryan, I know the work that, that you do in Africa is really impactful uh, and it's been um, really uh, inspiring for me to, to follow your journey on social media. Adam, I don't know you as well, but you seem like a great dude. So I imagine you're doing some good stuff too. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. He brother. is for sure, for sure. Oh, right, you guys have a good one. Thank you so much. This was awesome, Seth. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll All right talk, talk to you soon.